Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. With work spanning 45 years, Hal Rammel is a multidisciplinary artist. He works as an instrument inventor, composer, and improviser, performing mostly on instruments of his own design and construction. Many of his recordings have been released on his own label, Penumbra Music. And as a visual artist, he has worked in diverse practices, including drawing, sculpture, collage, cartooning, and photography. Hal, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. I think that I might have found your work. I'm trying to remember now how I uh, exactly found you. I've, I've interviewed a few instrument in inventors and designers, Tom Nunn and Mark Applebaum and, um, and, uh, and so several others. And uh, I'm just trying to remember now what the connection was. And you also work some with Christopher Burns, who I, I got to meet last summer. So I think we, we know some of the same people, and so it's uh, neat to make these connections and, and see all the, the interesting work that's happening out there. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Christopher Burns has, I think, introduced us. That, that's uh, right. I, yeah, and uh, Tom Nunn, I've, met, I've known for a long time, but met in person for the first time just uh, a couple months ago when he performed in Chicago. Yeah, great. Um, well, I think we should just dive right in here. Um, as someone who has started the practice of instrument design and building myself, uh, I'd be really keen to, to hear about uh, your work in that uh, area first. And typically at these shows, I, I always like to get some background. So maybe we could uh, get the background with, with regards to that uh, aspect of your work. How did you get started building and designing these, these wonderful uh, palette instruments that you make? Well, I think the first instruments that I built uh, with my own hands were Embira, and that was in the mid-1970s. And I'd been collecting unusual instruments for a long time and, and playing them you know, on my, on my own, not performing with them. But I, had, uh, I just decided I wanted to make an Embira. I was involved in the visual arts from high school on, so the idea of just stepping into something new was, you know, was pretty easy for me. I made some Embira, and uh, I showed one that I made to uh, the only other instrument builder that I knew at the time, who was Douglas Ewart in Chicago, who makes crafts beautiful uh, wind and percussion instruments, mostly from bamboo at that time. And uh, Douglas was very encouraging, and in fact, uh, used it in a concert of his uh, not long after that, although he retuned it considerably. It sounded really good, and, and Douglas's encouragement meant a lot to me uh, at that point. And so I just casually began building other things, stringed instruments and other things, as ideas occurred to me. And then in the early 1980s, I had an opportunity to do some performances, uh, and I'd already become confident with my abilities to improvise on the musical saw which is about as conventional as I get in terms of the instruments I play. Hmm. And uh, so the idea of being able to be an improviser out with other improvisers uh, really was another push to expand my ideas about how in instruments could be crafted. So I started making uh, bowed metal instruments, uh, some stringed instruments, and it's really escalated uh, right from those two points. Hmm. 
So the thing that I am most familiar with that, that's featured prominently on your website are these uh, musical palettes that you make, which are basically, if, I, if you could describe them, but they're essentially like a painter's palette that has metal prongs uh, around the perimeter and, and throughout. And uh, could you talk a little bit about how you began to make those? I was playing an instrument a lot uh, that was called a triolin. It was an my first attempt to make a nail violin. Nail violins are very old instruments. They're basically a small handheld uh, resonator with nails pounded in it to different lengths around the perimeter and played with a bow. And I, I wanted to make a nail violin, but not wanting to replicate something, I, I made one that's three-sided and used brazing rod of various lengths. And I've been playing this quite a bit, but I wanted something that uh, I could amplify and potentially use with some signal processing. And the I discovered in the context of a workshop I was giving in Chicago, this would be 1991, that wood has a phenomenal richness when it is played with a bow and amplified so that all its subtle textures can be uh, pulled out of it. And so the palette was a logical choice for the platform for these wooden rods because of its you know, ergonomic design and also because it's a nice visual image with uh, uh, with playing something that's handheld like that and held as if it were, were an artist's palette, in fact. Yeah. And so that's where the, that's where it came from. And, uh, you know, IG, IG, ideas with this and uh, the addition of other materials and uh, uh, sizes and just the exploration of that has really been ongoing for 25 years now from... 1991 to wow. the present. Well, it's a phenomenally rich, uh, excuse the pun, <laughs> palette of sound uh, that you can create from this thing. And uh, as I sort of perused some of the recordings that you had directed me to, um, I at first, I guess, found the YouTube video uh, where you're sort of demonstrating the palette and, and what it can do. But it sounds to me like there are other sounds going on besides just the bowed sounds. It seems like there are other implements and, and ways of activating this, the, this thing. Do you get a really rich sound world out of these instruments? I play it both as a bowed instrument and a percussion instrument. And the palettes over the last 15 or so years have I've added a lot of metal rods in addition to the wooden rods. And I play with a number of different kinds of mallets, uh, balsa, cork, uh, ping pong ball mallets, uh, metal. And the way this, the amplification makes the, the, the change from one type of mallet to another quite dramatic in attack and uh, duration decay of these sounds. I use, uh, for, for percussion, I use a lot of wire mallets, so uh, they really have a nice snap uh, when they hit these metal rods, and I, I let the response of the pallet and let the response of the rods, in other words, the, the kind of attack and the kind of decay that happens when I play it this way, is really being the really determinant factor in, in the space and the propulsion of any given improvised piece. Thank you. 
You mentioned the nail violin as being a very old instrument. Uh, are there? Can you talk about how those were? How did how did you find out about those instruments and where? I'm not so familiar with that in terms of it being like a folk instrument or something. Where does that concept come from? Uh, it, it actually can be dated to a German violinist, German or Russian, and then his name escapes me right now, but we can retrieve that at some point if you want to, uh, in 1760, and he was a violinist who discovered the sound that his bow make when he hung it on the nail on his wall when he was done practicing. You know, uh. he brushed the nail with, his, with the bow and heard this distinct pitch. So he had the idea of making this little round resonator, you know, possibly about the size of a hamburger, pounding nails around the perimeter perpendicular and hammering them into different lengths and uh, so that they, it could in fact be tuned. And uh, you know, searching instrument collections from all over the, in Europe principally, I mean there were all kinds of nail violins made and there was music written for nail violin. Fascinating. That's a whole history I have no, I've never heard of that. Uh, I'm very curious now, I'm gonna have to go and find, I, I just typed into Google as you were talking just now was it uh, Johann Wild or that's it? Yeah, Wild that's or something. Yeah, that's right. Wild, yeah. Wild, exactly. Wow, uh, fascinating. There, yeah, there's a little short entry in the on you can find online, but the place to go is really the Grove Dictionary of Musical Instruments. Okay. And Hugh Davies, a phenomenal English uh, instrument builder and archivist, wrote a really long entry on the nail violin uh, for the Grove. And that's really worth uh, digging out. And I will just say a little thing about Hugh Davies because he wrote all the entries for the Grove Mus Dictionary of Musical Instruments uh, in respect to 20th century instrument invention uh, that extends not only from the names of people that are most familiar to us, like Parch and and, and Lou Harrison and uh, so on, but also musical sculpture, sound sculpture, uh, musical costumes, uh, and then toy instruments as well, toy pianos and things like that. So Hugh Davies has been, in terms of my also writing about musical instruments, has been a real model uh, for me in terms of how do you write uh, seriously about all these innovations uh, in just a very comprehensive but uh, expressive way and ex expressive in terms of the pleasure that this kinds of these kinds of discoveries can offer yeah um, do you have a certain um, sort of visual aesthetic that you're going for in your instrument designs uh, or are you thinking primarily about the sound or because I asked because uh, many of their these palettes uh, seem to be decorated uh, with uh, wood burning or painting or um, or you just find really interesting looking old antique palettes that you've made into instruments and so I wonder how much of the uh, you know I was thinking like Harry Parch was it was all about the the totality of the artwork uh, how it looks on stage how one you know interacts with it in addition to how it's made and how it's tuned and all of that I wonder if that has some bearing for you oh absolutely I'm I, I always think about um, you know it's it's no matter what the scale even if you're holding uh, one instrument in your hand and the only person on the stage playing music it's still theater so I always think in terms of the visual presence of the instrument for myself 
as, uh, and as well as for the audience. I'm, I'm playing something that looks very atypical as a musical instrument, and part of the way of communicating with people and drawing people in is to make it visually interesting as well. And I, I'm pretty focused on wood and uh, in terms of the sound source and as well as the materials I craft with, but I, the, uh, the visual construction of the instrument is uh, a great deal of the pleasure I get from building these things is comes yeah. from various stages of construction. So that's a very important factor. To yeah, me. yeah. Okay, great. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit. I want to kind of geek out here and uh, talk a little shop on, you know, how you actually construct these things, like what the materials are that you're using, how you're attaching contact microphones, and what kind of things you're using for electronic uh, amplification and all of that, uh, because I'm fairly new at all of this i built one i've built one instrument so far in this summer I, i'm working on a big project um building some instruments or or thinking about designing some new instruments for a, a theatrical production with some friends of mine and uh who were really interested in this thing that i had made um which was really um I, I suppose influenced a lot by Mark Applebaum's uh, mouse trap inventions. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but that, yeah. that was a big influence on me, and also uh, Eric Leonardson's uh, Springboard. Sure, um, I know Eric really well. Yeah, yeah. So he was a big influence on me as well. He's also been on the show, so I, I took a lot of influence from from those uh, folks before I found uh, your materials, and then some of your stuff actually. Um, reminds me a little bit of Tom Nunn's uh, sound sculptures uh -huh. as well. I mean, it, in terms of like the rods and things, he does, I know he had done a whole lot with uh, attaching rods to pieces of metal. So, mm -hmm. but anyway, let's talk a little bit about the materials that you use. So you use some kind of bronze brazing rod that you sort of hammer into these things. What, what else, what other materials are you using? Uh, the pallets start with a pallet shape, either a commercially... Uh, a commercially made pallet, which is usually pressed wood, uh, or I cut them out of various, uh, you know, plywood, or uh, I've made some out of Sitka spruce, which is a very good soundboard wood. Uh, so I, I, just, I determine the shape uh, based, uh, if I'm making the pallet from scratch, I mean, cutting it out myself, I, I determine the shape I want uh, based on the grain of the wood, just to get an interesting pattern there, uh, determine where the thumb hole would be, even if it's a pallet that's intended to be used on a flat on a table and not held, I always put that that uh, hole in there just so that I can still call it a pallet. <laughs> <laughs> and also because it really sort of animates the shape. Yeah. It's yeah. very nice feature. And they're always reminiscent for me of some of Hans Arp's sculptures, which I which I much adore. Ah, so, okay. Uh, so then the the next step would be to to decide where the rods are going to be put in, the what the pad, circular patterns or straight lines or the the uh, curve of rods on the outside perimeter. Uh, and then I would uh, do the wood burning. Uh, which is not predetermined. I just uh, sit down and, and uh, look at the grain in the wood and the overall shape of the palette and begin burning a design into it. Mm. Uh, the next stage would be, in more recent palettes, I've also been carving out some shapes in there that I would paint with acrylic paint. Mm. Uh, then the staining, which pulls the grain out of the wood 
uh, makes it much more, gives it much more impact. And then uh, the, the final stage would be, would it be varnishing? And the final stage, of course, would be putting in the rods. And so they're all, the holes are pre-drilled for them, but they're snug. So it's, it's a lot of work getting the holes in there, the rods in there, whether they're wood or metal, uh, because I want them to be in there very, very securely. And then I, I, I put some, uh, some wood glue on the back side of it just to secure them even more. Hmm. Uh, so those are the various stages, and all the stages are really enjoyable. Uh, particularly the wood burning. That's, I guess, my favorite part of the whole thing. Hmm. But each each stage is a layer, and it's a layer that I that I'm if I'm standing over the palette playing it as a percussion, and it's the those are the layers that I'm peering into as I'm uh, as I'm performing. So it's just uh, very enjoyable at, at all stages. I I'm about four or five palettes ahead of myself in terms of the final construction because. I like to start every year with making a couple pallets just as a uh, as a good omen for the year to come. Hmm. Fascinating. So uh, the materials, uh, bronze, brazing rod, you said you also use wood sometimes, uh, like yeah, wooden it, it, rods, like dowel rods? Uh, dowel rods are usually a little too heavy. I use, uh, I'll, I'll give away the entire secret here, they're actually Q-tips. Oh wow! Okay. Tips, yeah, uh, and then I also use a lot of bamboo uh, skewers. You know, uh, you can yeah, buy yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheap packages of those and have a lifetime supply for very little money, and you can get them in different lengths and different diameters. Uh, bamboo like that takes, you know, a little more requires a little more impact to produce a tone, uh, but that's they can. Are capable of sounding like a bass marimba with the amplification I yeah. use. Well, so I put I put all these rods in, and they're all at their full length. And then, so the final step is to go back and begin cutting the rods, and which is in fact the tuning process. It's always going to be a subtra subtractive process, and so that's that's the final step, uh, and in the most intriguing. Uh, because I'm not interested in, um, you know, very defined ideas about tuning. I like to juxtapose pitches uh, seemingly randomly, although I'm very deliberate about making sure that there aren't uh, melodic patterns that, that show up easily. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, as I said, the materials and the timbres, all the textures of these instruments, are, uh, things are really jammed up against one another. Yeah. I, anyways, I try to build new palettes that I don't know how to play. Hmm. And so I've never been interested in making the best palette or the perfect palette. I've always been interested in finding something new in the palette. And in fact, in many instances, as I said, building something that I haven't figured out just how I'll play it yet. Well, and it seems to me that uh, of the different recordings that I've heard and uh, the ones that you have uh, photographs of on the website, I mean, each one seems to have its own kind of unique quality and character, that there are no two exactly the same. I mean, there's one, if, if anyone is wanting to go and check this out, howlrammel.com, uh, and you can uh, click on musical instruments and see what we're uh, what I'm looking at right now. And I'm looking at the second one on on there, which is this this whole forest of uh, of rods, and they're all bunched up together. And there's a whole bunch of them on there. And I would imagine that there are even some that are 
only reachable by sort of plucking in, you know, they're not around the perimeter, in other words, they're kind of all gathered together in the middle of the palette there. Um, so, so it seems to me that each one has its own uh, character and its own sort of technique. So, in fact, um, you know, I would, I would assume that it would be a very different experience uh, to, play, to play any one of these things. And when I play the palette like the one you're describing, I'll usually have three or four set on a table surface. They're each amplified independently because each may require a little bit extra uh, uh, boosting or a little bit extra EQing uh, to bring them all up to equal voice. But then I can play these with various mallets uh, and it, it, it will be one instrument. Yeah, but each palette has its own sort of uh, reverberant space to it because they, you know, the entire palette—you strike one rod, everything's going to vibrate in some way, uh, sympathetically. Either there are these really unpredictable uh, um, uh, things that happen on the surface of the palette when one is struck. These cancellations and these reinforcements of uh, of uh, pitch that uh, that really give each each palette its very very uh, different sound. Yeah. Uh, and, but I like combining them so that uh, a single sweep across the gamut of these three or four palettes uh, is capable of producing uh, you know quite a varied uh, percussive ensemble sound. Yeah. You know, the other thing, too, I do, is particularly with the metal rods, is I will put them really close to one another or bend them a little bit so that they're, you know, a tiny, tiny bit of space between them. But when they vibrate, they hit against one another. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. It's wonderful little buzzing timbre that's, uh, that I really came up with because I wanted to figure out a way to build an instrument that could sound like a prepared piano without being a piano. And so that was part of the idea. And, and also, I've always been fond of the embiras, which are often uh, made with uh, uh, shells or metal bottle caps and things attached to the tongues so mm -hmm. that they vibrate. And there's that, that, that element uh, of noise associated with any particular pitch. Yeah, I, am, uh, I love uh, embira, the sound of the embira and, and that music. And uh, if anyone's listening that's not familiar, this is the... The instrument that was um, traditional to the Shona people of Zimbabwe, and um, I was fortunate enough to study that instrument a little bit uh, in graduate school, and then since I've been here in Texas, uh, I've I've studied with a few teachers and have a, a beautiful imbira zavadzimu that I play, oh, and yeah. uh, so I so I know a little bit about it. I haven't. It's one of those things that. Um, you know, one of these years, uh, I'm just going to do an entire year of Mbira and learn, <laughs> you know, as much as I can. But it's one of those things that is always there. And I know a couple of uh, traditional songs, you know, that I play and, and oh, play nice. in concerts and things. But what and I, I want to backtrack a little bit and get uh, a little more info about that. So the first instrument that you made was an Mbira, but how did you uh, come across this instrument? Because it seems only in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so that this instrument has really become popular, particularly among percussionists. But uh, before that, it was a relatively small group of people that even were familiar with this instrument. So how did you uh, come across this? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, it, it, 
may well have been through recordings on the Nonesuch Explorer series, okay. which were pretty easy to acquire you know, when I first started listening to music. Sure. I, I would have also probably heard it uh, played by musicians in the AACM in Chicago because I started going to listen to their concerts in 1966-67, and it was probably there. But I think I may have bought one. Lion, Lion and Healy in Chicago had a really wonder. They were a music store, but they had a wonderful little storefront space where they uh, sold a lot of African instruments. The first one I ever bought was there. So, in fact, so it, that might be 1965-66, and, and that was the first one I owned, and, and uh, I may have just seen it there and been infatuated with it. Yeah. But I, I knew that music really well through recordings, and then uh, Paul Berliner's book came out, and I don't remember the year Paul Berliner's The Soul of the Ambira came out. Soul of out. Ambira, right, right. But I, but I got that book right away, and I heard him... Uh, and uh, I think with, uh, was it Ifat Mujuru? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, play at Northwestern. But this was this was later. This was maybe in the latter part of the 70s or where I actually heard Paul Berliner a few times. Yeah, the first time, I, I remember the first time I heard Mbira music, uh, my teacher at Cincinnati had one, and, um, you know, uh, it was just magical. I, I just... There was no other word that I can think of to describe other than it was just pure magic, you know, and uh, and it's such an intimate kind of thing. You know, I know in Zimbabwe it's uh, used for spirit possession and, and you know, these long, long um, uh, episodes of, of playing the instrument, but but in, in the context that I saw it was very intimate, you know, just a few people uh, gathered around the instrument and just totally magical. Yeah, I you know it's uh, it's a very personal sort of music, and I think that that intimacy uh, has stayed with me in terms of the way I I, I hear the palettes, and uh, so you know, and, and if you read Paul Berliner's book and and other things about that instrument in 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 Africa. It's also I've heard it read it described as traveling music in other words it's a small instrument that was so portable that someone could walk from one place to another and play this yeah and, yeah you know and then there there are a, you know a simpler a less complicated uh, a less elaborate version of what we know uh, of as the ambira from the shona uh, where they would just maybe have a few tongs uh, a few tongues to them five or six but but still, the idea of just playing, you know, for your own personal pleasure uh, like that and the intimacy of that sound and the feel of the vibrations in your hands, it's, it's, it's really a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah, it's interesting that, that that was sort of your entrance into this inst instrument making because that was a thing that I uh, heard in your music is almost this Imbira-like quality to some of, the, uh, some of the tracks on the SoundCloud page that you uh, pointed me to. I mean, they have, it has a much more unpredictable kind of melodic or uh, you know, note contour, but, uh, huh? but it has the, a little bit of that quality, some of the pieces, definitely. Well, thank you. That's... Uh, I, that's a very complimentary from my perspective. I, I would like, I would hope that that is in there. Yeah, certainly. I, I think certainly. 
Um, let's talk. I want to just get a little more shop talk in because I'm interested to know how you run your electronics. So what kind of contact microphones are you using and how are you uh, running through um, effects pedals? Are you running through a computer or how are you processing? Well, I originally when I made the instrument, I was playing a lot with a cellist in Chicago by the name of Russell Thorne who used to, you know, really, for that period, I mean, you know, fairly elaborate use of uh, electronic processing through his cello. And so one of the mo my motivations with the palette was to have a, a signal that I could uh, manipulate. So the first few years I was running the palette signal through multiple digital delay boxes, uh, up to six at a time. Wow. So I could you have these loops going or or capture these sounds and repeat them or distort them you know through the duration of the loop and do something that was quite uh, uh, full you know almost orchestrally full uh, and so that was how I was exploring the palette originally and, and you know being able to bow wood and what that sounds like and what the textures of that uh, are you know in using this this kind of processing was really rich for me. But when I started being more interested in using the palette as, uh, in improvising with other people, then I, I completely discarded all the effects uh, because I, I felt I couldn't be quick enough with them. Mm. I couldn't move fast enough to, uh, to be able to respond in that environment. So I, I really turned over to, totally to inventing new ways to play it. Uh, including the invention of all different kinds of mallets and uh, uh, the way I held the pallet sitting with the pallet uh, secured between my knees so that I had two hands to play or uh, using them as a tabletop instrument or mount, mount, mounting a pallet on, on a simple stand, things like that all gave me new ways to think about the pallet and to be able to respond and uh, explore all the sounds that it could produce. So uh, all I do is I, I have a use a K and K pickup on the back because the K and K uh, these little spot pickups really give me a really wonderful frequency response, and K and K makes a nice little uh, preamp that fits uh, with that perfectly, and so each palette that's all the amplification that each palette has. Okay, and uh, I run those into a mixer so that I can decrease or increase a little bit of the uh, the volume or boost the bass a little bit but that's basically it okay i don't use any other electronics wow. uh, presently it's yeah. just all and I, I i my my recording methods are primitive by today's standards i record everything direct to mini disc oh. and burn it to a cd create a WAV file on the computer and take it down to the Experimental Sound Studio in Chicago where Alex Inglisian works his magic and always makes me sound really good. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Alex, in, in working, you know, taking these mini-disc recordings uh, and having, uh, you know, really young ears <laughs> uh, master these things and really pull out everything that I hear when I'm playing because more often than not when I'm playing you know I record here at home and I have headphones plugged into the my mixer so I'm really hearing everything 
in my head and uh, Alex's mastering of these recordings it captures all that experience as vividly as I could ever imagine. Tell me a little bit more about the Experimental Sound Studio. It's an organization, nonprofit organization that's celebrating its 30, uh, 30th anniversary this this year. And I have been going there since, I think, for about 26 or 27 years. Uh, they were very early supporters of my work and the first workshops I did uh, regarding musical instrument design and invention were there in the early 90s. And I have continued to use the ESS's studios for all these years. They've mastered, I think, almost all of the Penumbra music CDs that I've released. Uh, almost all of my work has been not necessarily recorded there, but it's all been mastered there. And they do all kinds of work in Chicago uh, beyond making uh, studio facilities uh, available uh, at uh, reasonable rates. But they do a lot of uh, outreach and a lot of uh, production of experimental music in Chicago, in the Midwest, for that matter. Oh, terrific. Yeah, it's a great organization. I'm very... I'm... I'm playing at their 30th anniversary concert at Constellation Chicago on July 2nd, so I'm honored. Terrific. Well, this is an organization I need to get to know better. Uh, I'm a little unfamiliar with this group, so. Well, you know, I'm 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 taking unusual sounds to an engineer, and uh, I can't, you know, I I could ima easily imagine having you know uh, unsatisfying experiences with. Uh, studio engineers if I brought these recordings to them and I have none of those issues when I go to ESS mm. I mean this, this is the world they live in as well as I live in so it's a very uh, congenial situation yeah yeah which you, which is hard to find you know I'm sure you may have studio experiences that yeah in fact I'm I'm trying to get a um, my first solo album is coming out hopefully um Hopefully this fall, and I'm working with an engineer right now, and this was a, a more traditional sort of percussion setup uh, of, you know, drums and, and glockenspiel and chimes, and but also unusual things like uh, tuned rice bowls. I mean, uh -huh. fairly unusual, not unusual for percussionists, but unusual for a sound engineer, you know. So I was lucky to find someone that had had some experience with this kind of thing and uh, but even so you know it's been a it's been a long process to get the to get the sounds right and all of that and uh, oh, yeah. so it's yeah to have someone with with um, a very very niche sort of expertise would be uh, just really uh, a, the way to way to do this you know yeah yeah I know um, Let's see. I want to make sure we have time to uh, talk about some of your other work because, uh, you know, not only do you do this fascinating instrument design stuff, I also mentioned in the intro, you work as a visual artist. And, and certainly, I think I could, I could say that uh, many of these sound sculptures, uh, palette sculptures, uh, how, however we want to talk about them, uh, musical instruments or sculptures, they are definitely uh, visually inspired as well. So... Maybe we could talk a bit about your visual art. Well, that that would really precede uh, the musical instrument uh, construction part of my life. Uh, I really 
grew up with parents who were both, uh, my mother was a painter and a sculptor, and my father was a photographer, a photojournalist, and a carpenter. And so I grew up around busy people, people who were doing all kinds of things generated by their natural curiosity for building and, 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 and such. So I, in high school, I really started drawing very seriously, and, and that was part of everything else that happened for me and not atypically, you know, you know, I started reading, seriously reading, started listening to jazz, started wanting to know about movies and film and, and uh, drawing and things like that. So that, that's the foundation and drawing really in many ways is the foundation of everything that I've continued to do. And um, so, but one of the things that's most preoccupied in the last, you know, 15, 20 years is, is photography, but it's a, it's a little bit of an extension of instrument building in that I'm interested in pinhole photography, and pinhole photography replaces the conventional lens with a very, very minuscule aperture a pinhole, and it's possible to make my own cameras. And uh, the idea of making my own camera because I want to capture a particular image uh, is is not too much of a stretch for somebody who's been spending a lot of time building an instrument that might capture a particular sound. So uh, I do pinhole photography. I, I do a lot of more experimental sorts of things that are cameraless processes uh, under the enlarger photograms and multiple exposure photograms and, and things like that. And I've been very involved in the founding of a analog photo studio here in Wisconsin near where I live in the last couple of years and I'm finally giving workshops on photography based on all those years of giving workshops on musical instrument design. Wow. So yeah, I looked up about pinhole photography when I saw that was one of the things that attracted me instantly on your um when I was looking at your materials is the, the pinhole photography. And so I, I looked up, uh, researched a bit about pinhole photography and, and people, you know, how to make a camera and all of this uh, kind of thing. And uh, fascinating. I, I can't say that I knew about this sort of technique or um, practice before. Could you talk a little bit about what, what is a pinhole camera, how one gets into it, how one does it? Well, the, the idea that light passing uh, through a very tiny aperture against some surface in a, in a, in a light-tight room is, is really an old, very, very old observation. I mean, it goes back thousands of years of people being aware of this optical phenomenon. And the observation of that phenomenon has been crucial to uh, all kinds of scientific uh, uh, it's important in the history of science because it was one of the, th the observations that contributed to what is light and what is this energy and how does it move uh, from one thing to another. Uh, so, but in the history of photography, it was discovered that if you had, if you could capture that image on the other side of the pinhole, then and free and fix that image, then that was a type of camera, and uh, so. You, in, in a larger format, it's often called camera obscura, in which you have you can go inside this large light tight room 
and view the image of the outside of the room against the far wall, although it's inverted, uh, the entire image will be there. But if you use a smaller container and put light-sensitive paper on the other side, uh, you can capture that image. And uh, so I, I make, I use photographic paper as my negative. That's my habit in, instead of film. And uh, black and white, and then develop, and I have a paper negative. Uh, and then de depending on the, the focal distance or the size of the paper negative, you can produce a very wide angle image. You can distort the image by not having the paper perfectly flat inside this box. And uh, so there are all kinds of ways uh, that you can approach this and uh, make it a very personal sort of picture taking. And it's, you know, a very, very basic sort of phenomenon, uh, but uh, it's, it's really rich in results. And uh, it's a very good thing for young people to learn about what photography is and how it works because you can make a camera out of anything that you can make light tight. And, uh, but it's also something that you can spend a lifetime of refining and exploring. Yeah. So do you make your uh, cameras like out of cardboard boxes or um, what, do, what do you actually make your cameras from? I, I make them out of, I make wooden boxes and because I use paper negatives, uh, most of my most reliable cameras are 8 inches by 10 inches for an 8 inch by 10 inch sheet of paper and they're usually, my preferred focal distance is usually around 2.5 inches. That's a pretty wide angle view. Uh, and uh, the top of the box has uh, a piece of metal fixed to the top of the box and so that I, I have the pinhole in a pierced through a piece of brass that's attached to this top and uh, because brass you can because the pinhole, the aperture for example on these I think is around uh, 0.012 inches I mean we're talking about a really tiny hole in the box uh, but because it's metal, I use a refrigerator magnet as the shutter. So <laughs> taking the refrigerator magnet off of this is, works as the shutter. And because the exposures are relatively long, you know, it might be uh, a day like today, it might be 30 seconds. But in the middle of the fall, it might be 20 minutes. Wow. Uh, so that, that can work. That works very efficiently as a shutter. So they're very homemade looking objects. They're not uh, uh, pristine by any means, but they get kind of beat around in the backseat of my car when I go out taking pictures. And, and uh, uh, so that's how I, I fashion cameras. I mean, there are all kinds of ways to go with this by different pinhole photographers, either uh, finding the most uh, surprising sort of object. As long as you can make it light tight, it's potentially a camera. And so there's a kind of, you know, sort of more conceptual strain of all this that's interested in just making a, a camera out of anything and maybe being a little less concerned about the quality of the image it's more about what produced the image uh, whereas others are really refining and make these beautifully crafted cameras and uh, really elegant looking boxes I'm, I'm a little bit in between hmm. uh, between those poles because I've kind of settled on one or two cameras I, I really know the exposures uh, I don't use a light meter. I've just tried to learn how to read the light, the available light, and uh, take a lot of notes and accept a lot of failure. Yeah, so it's a kind of an intuitive process, would you say? 
for me, for it you. is. Yeah, yeah. But you know, <laughs> that's that's sort of my world anyway. Well, it, it it you know, there's something to be said for that, and 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 you get incredible results. And I would just maybe it would be interesting to to talk about one photo uh and then we could uh, direct people to that photo so that they could take a look at it or they could look at it after the show they could look it up um okay. and i'm looking at a particular photo here that's one of my favorites of yours it's called at the edge where the path narrows oh okay. and and so maybe you could talk about the process for making this particular photo it looks to me like it's layered like there are other uh things yeah. going on there so what, what what's going on here <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. There's many exposures involved in that picture, and I think that was a five by seven paper negative. Uh, I one of the things I do is combine the photogram process with the pinhole process. Uh, so because these cameras are in fact boxes that are two two and a half inches deep, it's possible to put things on top of the paper inside the box. So for that particular photo, and I'm just off of memory here, uh, I create a out of construction paper a, a little mask, uh, which would be let's say the outer rectangular shape you see, and then there's a cutout shape which is the inner rectangle, and so one exposure is made with that inner rectangle exposed, then I go back into the dark room, cover that up, and remove the outer frame that outer rectangle and then go back outside and make another exposure. The camera sits on the ground and points straight up. So around the periphery of the image, in both fields, you may see little bits of, of trees and plants uh, yes. protruding in. Uh, so the materials inside that are on top of the paper uh, may be combinations of twigs, leaves, glass rod, bits of metal, uh, other bits of, of you know, paper, cut paper. And uh, the, what that image is, I recall when I, when I did that image, so that may have been uh, even uh, maybe jarring the camera a little bit in the mid middle of that exposure of that middle rectangle, because I think there's kind of a double image. Yeah, effect. yeah, there's some, yeah. Probably just kicked the camera a little bit and jostled the stuff inside to produce a little bit of uh, ambiguity to the Fascinating. end. Fascinating. The result was very insect-like. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like that walking I, stick or something. Yeah, exactly. And I'm really fond. I mean, one of my favorite writers is, uh, and I think from the 1800s. I don't have. I may not have the years right. It was uh, amateur uh, entomologists etymologist uh, Jean-Henri Fabre, and I, I love his books, and, and he wrote in great detail about uh, all the insects he studied in his little garden, and they're beautiful, poetic, and uh, detailed, and, and so that's the dedication to Fabre. Ah, okay. I think yeah. the title actually is, uh, is an, a, adapted from a line in one of the books. Ah, it, yeah. it all is coming together. <laughs> uh, this well, is so, this has been so much fun. I I keep a series of notes here um, from all of the podcasts that I've done, and uh, it's so fascinating to find these connections and follow, 
you know, follow the traces back. And you mentioned this writer, so now I'm going to go find, you know, back backtrace and look at all of these different uh, threads and follow. Uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff, Hal. Um, well, I like to, you know, I'm I'm interested in a lot of things, and I like to pull these things together. I'm not interested in sort of formulating some larger concept to it all. It's just stuff I'm interested in, you know. But yeah. You know, uh, when I see something and they, it, it reminds me of Fabre or I, you know, I, I feel like I want to, uh, you know, I make very unusual looking instruments, but there is a lineage to these things. And, uh, you know, the nail violin, uh, Richard Waters, Waterphone, Tom's, Tom Nunn's work, the yeah. Ambira, they're all, they're all bowed and struck idiophones. They have yeah. a long history. We don't know who made the first Ambira. Right. You know, but somebody did. Yeah. <laughs> somebody did and somebody made one the next day and refined it a little bit yeah and so when we when we build things we connect to all that and it's quite extraordinary can i tell you one more story Oh, please please well you know i uh 14 of my instruments were accepted into the permanent collection of the national music museum a couple years ago and I was invited out there, and they had an ex exhibition in the context of, of, of my donation. And I, it's a fabulous museum. If you ever have an opportunity to go to Vermilion, South Dakota, it will just blow you away what is there. But one of the things that was so striking was that it just reminds you that all these things, and even perhaps more so than the with the instruments that we have always been part of our lives that we think have always been here you know violins uh, uh, reed instruments flutes and things they were all invented by somebody once and there have been all kinds of people making these subtle crude successful unsuccessful innovations and so you know when when you sit down and you have an idea and you try to put it together you're doing something that has been done for tens of thousands of years and, and not any differently uh, than it was done then. And it's, it's, uh, it's really something very rich to remember. It's very satisfying to connect to all that. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, I'm reminded of in Harry Parch's book in the, um, the Genesis of a Music, in the beginning of that book, there's like a, a preface and yeah. he he says something to the effect of you know students everywhere should you should learn to to question everything you know question yes. the the uh, you know the very fact of the piano you should question that question the the notes that it pro you know produces and yes. uh, and i think maybe there is a, a sense of that in instrument designing and building this this idea of questioning and and searching and uh defining for yourself um, the aesthetics of the sound that you will produce. I, I remember that passage really well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, Lou Harrison also wrote something uh, to that effect as well. Uh, he, he called instrument building a, 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 a summoning of the future. Hmm. Yeah, he, wrote, he also wrote very eloquently about... Uh, the experience of doing that and the experience of hearing those sounds for the first time that were produced by something that you made yourself. So do you keep a workshop at home or do you, uh, where do you get your materials and, and do you do everything from your house or do you have a place where you go and 
Work well, I or? work out of out of my home. Uh, we we live in a home now that was belonged to my parents. So when we inherited it and moved in here, there was a large woodworking shop in the basement. Prior to that, when we lived in Chicago, I made everything on the dining room table. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I've always, you know, lived, my studio has always been my home. I'm always surrounded by what I'm working on, no matter what it is. Uh, the idea of going to a studio is, it seems a little foreign to me because I just like being in my world. Yeah. Time, I like to wake up and be in that world to sleep in that world. <laughs> <laughs> That's Great. Just, yeah. Um. Well, Hal, I think we're nearing uh, the end of our time here. It's been really great chatting with you, and um, there's so much more to the to discuss, I'm sure. Uh, and you and I should keep in touch and 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 chat more about instrument design and building and and what you're what you're up to. But uh, I always like to close the show with a simple question that I got from a. Um, from an artist, Sharon Loudon, who has a terrific book, which I'll, I'll give another plug to, called Living and Sustaining a Creative Life. And, um, and that's the question that she asks, is how does one live and sustain a creative life? So I would uh, put that question to you. Stay curious. Stay curious and use your library card. There's, <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing you can't learn or do by just reading books and being curious about everything and if you're a musician you should be curious about movies you should be curious about books uh, you shouldn't confine yourself to music you should explore all the world because that's what's going to feed your imagination and learn about the past and don't be too seduced by the digital age and don't be too seduced by what is new and what uh, is being sold to you uh, through the media uh, the world is very old, and what's most interesting in the world is not what is new uh, and what is not what has seemingly changed in the last 10 or 15 years in the digital world, but what has not changed. And that is in keeping with what I, what I said a little earlier about uh, being in touch with the same sort of sensibility of making instruments as they've been made for thousands upon thousands of years. Um, you can do all these things yourself, and uh, it will provide you a very, very rich life. Make lots of mistakes, because that's how you learn. Terrific advice, Hal. I want to tag on one more question, because now you've piqued my interest. So what, what books are you reading now? What's on your shelf? If I were to come to your, your house <laughs> and look at your bookshelf, what, what's, what are you reading now that's inspiring you? Well, uh, I uh, am in the middle of reading a book on Robert Frank. It's called Robert Frank in America. It's about a, a book of photographs that he published in the mid-1960 called The Americans. Uh, I just got a book on Windsor McKay uh, and uh, his comics book strip pages from the early 1900s called Little Nemo in Slumberland. Uh, I've been reading that. And I've gotten, in the last couple of years, uh, really interested in Henri Bergson, and so I have a big stack of Bergson's books on time and uh, the imagination that I like to read at bedtime. And uh, Henri Bergstrom is is that the name? Yeah, a French philosopher from the couple of centuries back. Adding it to my list. Hal, <laughs> thank you so much for for taking the time to speak with me today. This was a real treat for me. Thank you so much. Yeah. 
for me too, John. Thank you so much. And let's stay in touch. I really would be love to hear more about what work you're doing. And thank you so much for your support and interest in what I what I'm doing. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.